Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. Today, Brian talks to Russell Cash, park ranger and archaeologist with the National Park Service at Zion National Park. We're going to talk a little bit about the archaeological background of, of Zion National Park. So, Russ, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Now, I, I have to ask, before we get to the main topic, you, you know, when we were just speaking beforehand, you were on a You've been spending the last few days on search and rescue, which is something we haven't delved into too much. Just as a as a quick aside, can you can you talk a little bit about what's what's going on in Zion? I saw that maybe there's been there's been a little bit of weather these last few days, so I, I just what, thought we'd check in and talk about that a little bit. Uh, with the search and rescues and yeah. everything, actually, the so with the search and rescues here, uh, we are one of the busiest search and rescue parks in the entire country, actually. Um, what we've had several over the last few days, and sometimes it's weather dependent, sometimes it's not. Uh, you know, sometimes when there's flash floods, like if it rains, we can have things, people getting stuck in slot canyons mm-hmm. with flash floods, but more often than not, it ends up being injuries to knees and to ankles and to shoulders just from people tripping and falling on trails, right. and then they're not able to get themselves out, so we have to assemble teams to go and retrieve those patients and get them safely back down the trails. Occasionally, people will wander off trail and get lost, and then we have to organize search teams and go locate individuals who are lost in some section of the park. And what ends up happening is as weather gets warmer, the amount of rescues tend to go up because there tends to be more people in the park, and with more people, there's a higher chance of individuals getting injured. Right. And that's kind of what happened, you know, over the last few weeks. We've had several different rescues because weather has been warmer and more people have been visiting the park. And it's been everywhere from a couple of searches there's been for lost people and there's been a couple of injuries as well too. There haven't there haven't been any deaths in the last few weeks. We did have one death a couple of months ago from somebody falling off Angel's Landing, so we did have to go recover a body there. But more often than not it's just small injuries that we have to take care of and get them taken to the hospital. But it takes a lot of people to do that. Right. It can take, you know, it can take anywhere from eight to a dozen people to carry somebody off of a trail, or it can take a couple dozen people to do a search to find somebody that's missing. Right. Well, you know, we, we have talked about this on a prior uh, podcast on Zion and, and in particular about Angels Landing that, uh, it is, even though it's a very popular trail and, and, uh, my buddies and I, we, we did it. It, uh, it was. It took us aback that this is. It's a serious trail, and there's serious danger involved. It's doable, and it's it's something that you know if you're in decent shape and you take care and you practice all the right precautions, hydration, wear the right shoes, it's doable. But uh, at the same time, this isn't just a. It's not a walk in the woods, right? So I, I, I uh, we, we've cautioned that on our uh, uh, without a, alarming anybody on our prior podcast, but uh, it shows you that the the danger is real, considering that just happened a few months ago. Yeah, well, and the other thing that I'd also like to add is that on trails such as Angel's Landing and Observation Point, these ones that are a little bit longer, steeper, more dangerous, people tend to have a a cautious take when they go on those trails. The ones where we actually have an incredible amount of injuries happen to be on the easy trails, like the Riverside Walk and Emerald Pools, where people aren't careful anymore because they think that they're on a safe trail and nothing's going to happen to them. But the amount of rescues that we have to do on those two trails is really unbelievable. Really? That I would not have guessed that. That's interesting. So your, your hiker kind of lets their guard down. Maybe, uh, 
maybe they think, ah, it's a short hike. I, I don't need to hydrate as much, or they're not looking where they're going, and uh, they twist the ankle, get a little dehydrated. That I would not have guessed that, but that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, and the other thing that happens along those lines, too, is, you know, well, and as people is in the developed world, as people tend to be more and more out of shape, you know, they they feel comfortable, like, oh, this is an easy hike, I can tackle that, you know, and I'll be fine, you know, even though I haven't walked in months or I haven't run or hiked or anything in years, I feel that, you know, doing a small, easy trail is going to be great, but they're just not used to walking or they're just not used to hiking. Yeah. And then they end up tripping and falling over themselves or we've even had heart attacks because right. it's the first physical exertion that people have done in years. And well, it's 100 degrees or 110 degrees outside. Well, there's that. And, we, you know, I said this, you know, my uh, touch wood, our, my, my buddies and I are in decent shape for guys our age. And, and we do this, you know, pretty frequently. But even for us, and and uh, one guy's now on the West Coast, uh, my other buddy and I are both Long Island, being on the coasts and being in humid areas, uh, I found that even though, you know, that old saw about the dry heat, I feel that that snuck mm-hmm. up on me a little bit where I thought just the, the East Coast, Houston, uh, being used to humidity, knowing when it's hot and when you have to hydrate, I found that if yeah. I, I wasn't conscious about drinking water, I would just, ah, oh, it feels fine out. It's not that hot. And, uh, of course it is. And it is, and you need to hydrate. I can, I can very easily see us falling into that mistake unless we were pretty consciously making sure we were, uh, getting enough hydration. Yeah. And the other thing that along these lines as well, too, even the, you know, and I consider myself to be in pretty tip top condition just because I hike and run and climb and canyoneer and everything all the time for work and for my days off, it can take one one mistake and you're stuck and you're in a situation that requires help. I can tell you that I've been canyoneering in canyons and I have seen myself included or one other person where a piece of equipment goes wrong or a knot gets stuck and there's four or five of you now that are in a difficult situation and it requires some thought and a process to try to get out of there. I myself have never had to be rescued, but there's been times where it's been close and I've been incredibly cautious and in incredibly good shape. So it can happen to anybody in all reality, including park rangers. Things happen all the time. So, so just to tie up this, uh, just to tie up this little aside that we're having, and let's, and we should also say that uh, for, for all these instances we're talking about, which are real and happen and we have to be cognizant uh, the, the, the chances are that when you visit Zion National Park, you're going to have a good time and not going to be hurt. And th- there's nothing particularly, um, particularly fraught here. It's just, you know, you're out in the wild and things happen. So I, I, I also don't want to alarm anybody, and I'm sure you don't as well. Um, no, and, and the thing that I'll add is, so in 2016, we had, what, 4.3 million visitors. Mm-hmm. And out of those 4.3 million visitors, we had just over 100 search or re- you know searches or rescues. Right. So, you know, 100 out of 4.3 million. That's an incredibly, incredibly small percentage. That's right. That's right. And so, just last question with this is how does one, how does one ask for help if you're out if you're in the back country and you're lost or someone's hurt or even if you're in the front country on a front country trail and something goes awry, how does one so, uh, with cell service being spotty? How, what do you suggest? So here in Zion, we're really, really lucky because in all reality, we're an incredibly small park. We're only just over 150,000 acres. And you compare that to something like Wrangell Elias, Wrangell St. Elias, 
with what, you know, they've got over 15 million acres, or you compare us to Grand Canyon mm-hmm. at over a million acres. We're a teeny, teeny, tiny park. And because we're so close to developed areas, um, throughout most of the park, you actually have cell phone service. It's going to be spotty at, at best, but you can usually get a bar or two in some places. On Angel's Landing, I can tell you, you have four bars of 4G service. Yeah at the top of Angel's Landing. So in most areas in the park, you know, if you're if you wander around in a half mile radius, you're likely to get cell service somewhere. So that's how we get informed more often than not, is somebody will call nine one one and that will get sent to a county dispatch center who then forwards the call on to us, to our dispatch center. Or if you get hurt in the front country, just because there's so many people on these front country trails. Right. You know, somebody gets injured, somebody will run down the trail and inform a shuttle driver or inform somebody at the lodge or, you know, they'll run into a park ranger and that happens pretty quickly. So our response time can be pretty good throughout most of the park. Good. Well, that's it's just uh, interesting that we were talking about that and that was a bit of an education for us. So thanks for thanks for sharing, Russ, on, on that again. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think anyone has to lose sleep over this, but it's, you know, use an abundance of caution and realize that sometimes things happen anyway, but you mitigate it away by making sure you're doing the right things and then your your chances are great that you're just going to have an excellent time and nothing nothing yeah. is going to happen. Um, but let's, let's toggle a bit about some of your expertise here. And I'll start by saying uh, maybe I'm in the minority, but it's my sense that uh, – your compete, your being kind of the archaeology and the story of the first peoples of Zion National Park are competing against the great vistas, some of these great trails that we're talking about. So at least for me, it didn't occur to me, come to Zion National Park and and learn about the archaeological, anthropological history. It was come to Zion National Park, camp out, see some great sites, sites go on some stunning hikes. Uh, but uh, it seems as though, as one can imagine, any place out west, there's a, a rich history there. So, I, I mean, do you feel that kind of competition with you're competing against an Angel's Landing or a Narrows Hike or some of the great uh, the great vistas? Uh, but you have this you have this great story to tell as well. Yeah, so the, there is a great story to be told here. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The vistas and the geology of Zion National Park, that's why it's a park. It got set aside as a park because of the the scenery that you see around you, the cliff faces, the unique canyon. That's why it's a park. But that doesn't mean that that's the only piece to the park. It's the same reason, you know, you could take it clear to the opposite end. You could go to Mesa Verde, which is set aside specifically because of those absolutely magnificent pueblos. But that doesn't mean that there's not some amazing nature And Mesa Verde. So every park that you visit has unique natural resources and unique cultural resources. Here at Zion, we just happen, cultural resources just happens to be the secondary thing, whereas the primary thing here was the geology. But we have a magnificent history here that goes back 8,000 years, and not very many people know that. Yeah, let's, to the extent we can, we can race through 8,000 years of human development. I don't know if we can, but uh, uh, can, can you kind of give a broad pattern of the Native Americans, the first peoples, and, and what they, who they were, what they were doing in, in Zion, and, uh, and, and what, what happened to them? I, I get broadly uh, and, and, and give a sense, and then we can toggle into some of the, some of the signs they left behind. Yeah, so here in Zion National Park, we have hard archaeological evidence 
that shows that people have been coming in and out of the area up on the plateaus and into the canyon for at least 8,000 years. We suspect that people have been coming in and out of here even longer than that because there is archaeological evidence in the area that goes back over 10,000 years. We just have not found that hard proof yet here in the park. But we can say 8,000 years. People have been coming up onto the plateaus and into the canyon as hunter-gatherers during the archaic time period. And we find that evidence through the different kinds of projectile points that we have here, that we found here in the park during excavations and during surveys. So there's different styles of projectile points, which are knives, spear points, uh, arrowheads, things like that. The way that they're shaped and how large they are really helps us determine time periods. And so we're able to get dates off of that. And so we know that people have been here for at least 8,000 years. And evidence is pretty sparse for several thousand years because they were hunter-gatherers and they were going across the landscape following herds of animals and stopping for brief periods of time where resources were abundant. You know, deplete resources, move on to the next. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't start, we really don't start to see any human development in such as permanent camps or permanent settlements until we get to what's called the basket maker period of the ancestral Puebloan culture, uh-huh. which um, Anasazi is also another term uh, for those cultures that we use. Ancestral Puebloan is what we use now in archaeology to describe those cultures. And we're talking we what's called the basket maker three area era, which is, you're looking at like AD 500, 600, 700 in there, depending. And that's where we start to see people create things called pit houses. And they start to do some basic horticulture of the area, start to harvest crops and start to plant their own crops and create structures, start to create pottery, things like that. Things that lend themselves well to a more sedentary lifestyle where people can actually start to develop the area around them. And as time goes on, eventually they start to build things like large granaries, they start to build pueblos, Mm -hmm. and they start to have larger civilizations that are even more sedentary, and they're able to develop quite a bit and leave a lot of archaeological evidence on the ground that we see and learn learn from. I have to imagine that the... uh... The Virgin River has to had to have been an attraction as well. This oasis in the desert, in some regards, to have that water supply there, and and I would imagine for both the nomadic Indians and then the more settled uh, Puebloan Indians, right? The game would come to the river. I would imagine uh, just just as though we, uh, just as our attraction to going to this great oasis in in the desert in terms of a national park, I had to imagine that uh, there was some of that same attraction, a practical attraction there for. Uh, for hunter-gatherer societies, and then again, a more agricultural society. Yes, and that is, it's very, very much that way. And you can look across the entire landscape of the desert. You can actually look across the entire landscape on any continent. And you'll look where settlements have plopped down. Mm-hmm. They have usually plopped down on the coast near water, mm-hmm. or inland they've plopped down near a river that that can be utilized to water crops or... You know, you can get fish out of it and other resources. That's where humans and animals tend to be drawn to as sources of water. Look at all the major cities in the world. Look at all the where sure. they're located. It's been human nature for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to settle 
where resources are easily accessible and water's the most important resource to humanity. So why would you not right. settle close to that? Right. And so that that's probably a nice segue into you do have a trail that tells this story a bit, the archaeology the archaeology trail. Um, can, can you give a quick description of that trail and what we'll see that, that uh, coincides with some of the things that you're talking about there, the granaries and some of the remnants that, that we're seeing? Yeah, so the archaeology trail is actually, it's an incredibly, incredibly short trail. It's actually the shortest trail we have in the park. If, if I remember correctly, it's only about 700 feet, 800 feet long. It's not long at all. And it just goes, it goes up a very small hill adjacent to our visitor center parking lot. And it ends at an archaeology site that's called the Watchman mm-hmm. Archaeology Site at the top of the trail. And it's an ancestral Puebloan archaeology site. It's where a pit house was, some storage cysts are. And it actually provides a great vista into the main canyon, actually out of the canyon into Springdale and the Mojave Desert out there in the end of the Colorado Plateau. Uh, but... There's there's not like a huge structure or anything that's still standing there, but you can see the remnants of a pit house and those storage cysts that are there. And we do have an interpretive panel there where people can actually read a little bit about the the Virgin River Anasazi branch of the ancestral Puebloans. And what I like about that, the nice symmetry, of course, it's right by the Watchman campground, right? So so modern people who are who are putting a stake in the ground uh, can just walk a few hundred feet and and travel back in time to uh, several thousand years ago and see where the ancient Pueblans have been put their own stake in the ground and how they and how they uh, utilized uh, how do they utilize the Virgin River and the and the canyon as well. So that's it's a nice thing to do when you're camping out. You can just walk right up there. Yeah, and it, the thing that I like to do when I go up there, because we still do some maintenance on there, uh, because we did excavate that site in conjunction with a nonprofit organization back in 2000. Mm-hmm. What I want to say it was before I got here. And we excavated it, and then we backfilled the excavation after we got everything out of there and learned what we could learn from it. And the wind tends to blow the backfill off there. So we have to go do maintenance up there quite mm-hmm. a bit to rebury some things. And every time I'm up there, I can just imagine living up there and looking out across the valley down there because you can see really well mm-hmm. to the river. You can see the flat areas around the river, and you could just imagine seeing crops and other pit houses and other things where people were living down there. It, it's a great vista to view plenty of things. It's unbelievable. And yeah. I can just imagine lots and lots and lots of people a thousand years ago wandering down there, picking corn and squash, and working the fields down there. Right, or just, just uh, again, they're the same shared human interaction, just as though when you're on that vista uh, and you say, this is the place, maybe not in terms of your thinking about the agricultural health of your community, but you say this is the place as a visitor and as someone who enjoys nature. At the same time, that same element probably for uh, uh, these Native Americans where they said, yeah, this is the place because it, this all clicks in in terms of what we need to sustain our uh, to sustain our community. And by the way, it's also not terrible to look at too. So this is, this is the place, right? You probably have that same shared feeling. Yeah, there, there's, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no reason that something a thousand years ago that looks like a great place wouldn't be a great place today. Yeah. Yeah. Bar, barring some natural disaster or, you know, a spring gets cut off or something along those lines. But if it was a good place to set up camp and live a thousand years ago, it's probably a good place to set up camp today and, and hang out for a while as well. 
and again, another nice segue into uh, we know we can know that not to lead the jury here, but uh, through the petroglyphs that are also available in the park, so uh, or available to view in the park. So can you can you talk a little bit uh, a little bit about uh, just start? What are petroglyphs? Where are they in the park, and uh, what, what do they tell us? So with the petroglyphs and pictographs that we have in the park, we have over a hundred and fifty different panels that we manage here in the park. And the overwhelming majority of them are locked off to the public. Mm. And we don't provide locational information. We don't provide access. And, uh. we will, and we will not give access to them to protect them, in order to protect them. We do have one panel that we actively promote and allow the public to visit and to see. And it's kind of near the south entrance. And it's called Southgate Petroglyphs. And it's it's essentially it's a boulder about 150 yards into the park on the left-hand side of the road. Mm -hmm. And it's a prominent boulder that stands out there just off the road. And there's a small parking area for it as well, too. And there's several petroglyphs there on that rock. And it's, it's a neat sight, but it's also the, in my opinion, it's the saddest thing that we have here in the park as well too just because Graffiti. it's such an interesting piece it's a, such an interesting piece of our collective history but because there is public access to it there is more graffiti and oh. vandalism on that rock than any other place in the park it's it's sad it oh. is so so sad and it is one of the biggest frustrations for me in the entire world that People do not understand that once this history is gone, it's gone forever. Uh, you cannot. You cut down a tree, you can replant a tree. You kill off a herd of deer in the canyon, you can transplant new deer into the canyon and try to restart a population. You trample some flowers, you can replant some flowers. You can't do any of that with our history. Once our history is gone, it's gone forever. And getting people to understand that is so, so so hard. It's frustrating. And Russ, you know, so we're, I'm simpatico. We, we just got back from a, a trip to Smoky Mountains National Park and not, not nearly uh, as ancient as some of the things you're talking about, but some of the frontier cabins and dwellings and barns, uh, you know, they're just covered in knuckleheads putting, you know, Steve was here August, 2016 in Sharpie or worse carving it in. And it's, uh, it's yeah, hard to manage. Have, you can't be everywhere as a ranger uh, looking at everything, and uh, it's just uh, you, you need to rely on people to use a little bit of common sense and also to not be so selfish, but it's, uh, it's rough. Yeah, we, have, we have a similar situation like up in the northern section of the park in the Colop Canyons section of the park. I was up there last week to go check on some homesteading cabins that we have along one of our trails up there. And people had kicked the panels out, had kicked the wire, the wire covering the windows out, had removed no. one of the hinges off the door trying to get in, and had like scratched their name into the logs on one of the walls as well, too. And I just don't understand why. Yeah, that's... Those are, it's unbelievable that things like that happen. That's heartbreaking. We, we went on that hike, uh, and we, we saw that cabin. I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's just, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. There's, there's nothing we can say other than uh, don't be so selfish. You know, no one wants to know that, you know, Steve and Mary were here uh, last month, and uh, we don't care. And so it's and, – and you're ruining it for, for everybody else. So 
can you tell us what happened to the native people? Where where did they go, and uh, why uh, why are there just remnants, and there's not a uh, uh, there's not some tribal areas right outside, or or are there? So so w- where are they? So what we have happening here is, as the archaic culture leads into the ancestral Pueblo culture, they move in here and they establish themselves and they start to do horticulture and have a more sedentary lifestyle. Uh, climate change begins to happen in the 12th century and 13th century. And a lot of these more desert areas, mm-hmm. water becomes scarce, resources become harder to come by, animal herds move other places. And so it becomes, essentially it becomes impossible for people to have a sedentary lifestyle anymore. And so they have to break up or move away and, you know, turn, and they have to go back to a hunter-gathering kind of lifestyles. In order to in order to survive, and so no organized civilization on a large scale exists anymore in some of these places. Mm-hmm. They are simply abandoned just because out of necessity. But at the exact same time, there's another group of people that we have called the Southern Paiute, another culture that very very skilled at living this kind of lifestyle and living off the landscape and having a mobile lifestyle throughout the entire Southwest and Western United States. And they begin to move into the area and start to utilize the resources around here on the plateaus and by the river. And they're actually still around today. So the Southern Paiute exist. There's Mm -hmm. several different Southern Paiute reservations throughout Arizona, Utah, Nevada, California. And the park, we work very closely with them. And we consult with them Anytime that we have to do excavations or if we find a burial or if we're modifying a site, we work very closely with them to get their opinions on things, to find out how their culture, how they would treat these finds or how they would treat archaeology sites. And we want their opinion, and we work very closely with them now, particularly the Kaibab, bind, Kaibab Band of Southern Paiute. We work closely with them and get their opinion on several different things when we do archaeological work here in Zion. Are there traditions that they have, that they currently uh, celebrate now that you can see tied back into how they were able to survive and thrive when they were able to move into the canyon? Yeah, and they survived and they thrived in this landscape where other cultures had essentially dissipated Mm -hmm. and the Southern Paiute have thrived and they continue to thrive and their cultural traditions are still alive. Uh, A lot of, a lot of them are expert basket makers and they love, you know, to keep their traditions alive and they share their cultural history with people on a regular basis. Uh, There's several powwow gatherings in Cedar city Mm -hmm. And we also, at the National Park Service, we have another Park Service unit called Pipe Spring National Monument in northern Arizona that's actually right in the middle of one of the southern Paiute reservations. And they work very closely with them there, and we work closely with them there as well, too. And it's not just the Park Service history and story here, and it's not just a Mormon settlement and pioneer story here. It's very much their story and their history as well, too. It's a collective history that we have in these parks in this area. Which just goes back to uh, the respect one should pay when they're visiting these sites in the park and not taking out their pen or their chisel or whatever it is to deface them, right? That there's a living cultural element here. So you're not just wrecking history from thousands of years ago, but you're being disrespectful to uh, an adjacent tribal area as well, right? And, and, and mm-hmm. tribal people. So, 
Uh, I think that speaks to it. I put it akin to doing the exact same thing if you were, you know, in the bigger Western culture, you know, Western European cultures. Um, if you were to go deface Notre Dame, or if you were to go deface the Basilica de Familia, or you were to go deface Stonehenge or carve your name in that, we would, many people would find that abhorrent. And it should be no different. Right, and it should be the exact same level of respect. It's the same shared history. Right, it's humanity's history. It should all, it just all needs to be protected, protected and respected, like the important pieces of our cultural heritage that it is. What What are the stories recorded on the rocks? So, so what would we see when we saw a pictograph or a petroglyph, and and uh, what's important about it, or do we know? Um, so, with the petroglyphs and the pictographs that we have here in the park. There's no way for us to truly know what the artist had in mind when they were doing that rock art. Were they putting one of their traditional stories down on on that panel to help educate their youth on moral values or on their history or their belief systems? We Mm -hmm. will never, never know as far there's just, well, I should say maybe one day there'll be some way that we we can find out and that we'd know, but as it stands now, it's in the foreseeable near future. There's no way that we're going to know exactly what it means. Um, right. The only thing that we know is that they're incredible works and they're incredible pieces of history. Just to see that pigment up there and to see they obviously took a lot of time to put those in there to peck a petroglyph into the rock or to take the time to grind up some minerals and then make a pigment and then paint it on the wall. It's very time-consuming to do it right and to do it well. So we can tell that these were important pieces of their lifestyle and they were important pieces of their of their culture. We just do not know exactly what it means. Yeah, yeah I think that's an important point. And, and we learned a little bit about this at a, at a sister park of your Cigarro down in Arizona, which has petroglyphs that I think there's this common, not to belabor the point, there's a common misperception that, well, all, and I'm doing air quotes, all this is, is ancient Native American graffiti that someone that someone kind of spray painted in passing 5,000 years ago. And I think, uh, I think you raised the point of that's not the case at all, that there was some thought and care. There is, there is some message trying to be imparted here that was important enough that someone took a lot of time and thought, or some peoples put a lot of time and thought into uh, putting something up on a rock uh, to to tell a story, right? And I think that's the important. That's an important point. Yeah, it's a very important point to note because I, if you ever get the chance to, you know, I, there's probably some plenty of things on YouTube or out there that show how petroglyphs are made. Just look mm-hmm. at what people have to do to make that happen. When you have other things to worry about, like what am I going to eat for today? Uh, yeah. Am I going to find clean water for the day? I've got. I have to go and get water to this small little field of beans that I planted or I'm going to starve to death. You know, right. the, it, it's incredibly time-consuming and it was obviously very important to them to take their most valuable resource time to do that. So it was, had to right. have an important message. That, that said, uh, just to be fair, if I wanted to go in the backcountry, where can I go that is allowed where, where you, you, you maybe do have it marked out and segregated, where it is allowed that I can see some uh, pictographs and petroglyphs uh, or other remnants of Native peoples, or backcountry is completely uh, completely shut off and hidden. Yeah, so here in Zion National Park, 
in all reality, all of our backcountry areas, the all of those are actually shut off to the public. Every oh, one of the okay. geology. Um, however, they are abundant, and in a lot of the ones that are that people do come across quite often, uh, they will have signs there that will explain the Archaeological Resources Protection Act or ARPA and explain the site itself. And people do come across those quite often. We just were required by law to keep those locations basically hush-hush and we can't give them out. But that doesn't mean people aren't going to come across them and see them. And when people do come across them and see them, that's absolutely amazing because it's a piece of our collective history. Look at them. Be careful with them. Treat them with respect uh, because they're out there and they're everywhere. The desert southwest is just absolutely loaded with right. archaeology everywhere that you go. It's it's hard to walk around the desert out here. And if you were to sneeze anywhere, you're probably going to hit some hit hot it. shirts or some lithic flakes. Yeah. It's totally possible because they're just everywhere out here. Uh, so that's actually – actually, I'm going to go in the other direction. That sounds fun where – uh, you know, you're on a backcountry uh, trek for, you know, a night or two nights. Uh, the idea is keep your eyes open. You may be surprised and you may come across your own, you know, not your own, but you may cross, uh, come across kind of a nice surprise. It's a, it's a, uh, I think that's kind of a nice enticement to get out in the backcountry. Again, as long as you're being respectful and, and take care of what you see. But uh, that's kind of a fun element and an extra incentive to perhaps go in the backcountry. Yeah, it, it's I, I completely wholeheartedly agree with you. It, it makes it a little bit exciting because you weren't expecting it. And when you come across something along those lines and you see that and you realize that you're looking at something that somebody 1,500 years ago, 1,200 years ago made and it's yeah. still there, it's pretty incredible. Right. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned it, it in our own history in this country and before we were a country, but just as a continent – uh, it reminds me of uh, sometimes, though, I, I do get that American sense where, uh, you know, history, you know, it's, it's, it's about 300 years old and you kind of forget how how other civilizations, how long they've been around. And, and a long time ago, Daniel and I were were uh, on vacation in Greece and uh, I we went diving and I found a, uh, a mamphora shard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I thought Jacques Cousteau, look at me, I just found a major find and I told the dive master and everyone, and they basically said, hey, man, you know, throw a rock in any direction. <laughs> You're going to hit those shards, so don't get too excited that you saw that you saw one. So, I uh, again, it, it drilled into my head, like, oh, yeah, these were heavily, heavily trafficked areas thousands and thousands of years ago, and I need to kind of get out of my own headspace as, a, as an American a little bit, that, you know, his, ancient history is not, you know, just the Declaration of Independence. It uh, <laughs> goes a lot further than that. Uh, and, and yeah. And now, in despite of that, I'm going to break that own rule here because, I, and I don't mean to gloss over 8,000 years of, of Native American experience uh, in the canyon, but I, I, just in the interest of time, I do want to kind of roll the tape forward to uh, the Mormon pioneers. And, and we talked a little bit about um, up in Kalab and, and some of the remnants you see, but can you, can you kind of sketch out then uh, when the Mormons came, came across and... Uh, and uh, and what their experience was and, and, uh, and how that all came to be. Yeah, so basically what you have with the, with the Mormon pioneers is 
So you had Mormonism in the early 19th century started up in, I want to say, New York and Pennsylvania, area up in the northeast. And as they gained converts and gained people and members of their church and everything, they slowly began working their way west. And in 1847, they ended up in Salt Lake City and what was then Mexico. And then after, well, they founded the town of Salt Lake City. It didn't exist before that they founded it, and which was, at that point in time was northern Mexico. And then after the U.S.-Mexican War, then that area became part of the United States. Mm-hmm. And then about a decade later, in the late 1850s, uh, Brigham Young, who was the territorial governor of the Deseret Territory and the leader of the Mormon Church at the time, began sending people several different ways throughout the western territories in western United States there, into California, into Nevada, into Idaho, even up into Canada, and even down south into present-day Mexico. And one of the areas that people got sent to was down south here into southern Utah. Mm -hmm. And the whole entire goal in the area here was to grow cotton. That's what they were trying to do. And it didn't work out so swell for them in the way of growing cotton. They spent a lot more time trying to grow the food that they needed to live. Right. The the soil down here is just sand, yeah. and it's difficult to grow anything in sandy soil. And so people spent a lot more time here just trying to survive rather than turning it into a cotton industry down here. And that happened in the late 1850s, the early 1860s as well, too. A lot of these smaller towns got founded. Mm -hmm. And one of the other big problems that they had here was the Virgin River. It looked like a good place to settle, but it's also very prone to flooding during the summers, during the monsoon season. So a lot of these towns got washed away. Like, I believe the town of Grafton, which is abandoned now, was on its third iteration by the time it was abandoned because of how many times it had been washed away. There's towns like Adventure that don't exist anymore, Northrop that doesn't exist anymore because they all got washed away. And so the river, the environmental conditions were not very easy for them at all, but they did manage to eke out a small living and survive here until the early 20th century when this area began to be opened up to the outside world as transportation and the railroads came here. Right. I, I kind of like the name uh, Adventure. That's that's some nice marketing there in terms of that town. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was I think, an adventure, fact, I, I guess. Think that one, yeah, and I think that one only lasted like eight or nine months before getting washed out completely, if oh. I remember correctly. Well, you know, you, you mentioned the, some of those hikes up in, in the Calaba area, and it's kind of the same thing. Again, easy for me to say, because I'm just a guy dropping in, going on a hike, but uh, cooler up there, and when we passed by uh, some of the cabins, you realize that oh yeah, this is I get it. This is this is nice. Not that anything was easy, but this is nice up here. It's a uh, it's a, a a little bit of a temperature break. The water's nearby. Uh, I can see why if you're going to settle in the re- region, you're going to say I, I think I'm going to plant my flag here. I, I I got it, and so it's a very nice area. Yeah, it you know they're very nice areas to visit and to hang out in, but. To try to make a living there. Don't live there. There's yeah. a reason. Yeah, there's a reason there's not a town in Colorado Canyon. <laughs> Don't romanticize <laughs> a, it. I got it. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, and there, and there's and there's a reason why there's no big town inside Zion Canyon itself. <laughs> right. Right. It's a hard place to make a living. 
Got it. Well, listen, thank, thanks for that. Thanks for that education. We, uh, and again, important, and uh, I'm glad we have this background, uh, this backdrop uh, for Zion. I, I know you said it as well that, you know, sometimes this takes a back seat, but uh, the more I talk to you, the more I think we should have our eyes wide open, and uh, this should be, uh, this should coexist equally with the stunning views and, and being being out in uh, in Zion, that this should be at the forefront of our minds as well, because there was a lot of people that came before us who who looked at this practically, but also probably looked at it aesthetically as well and said, this, you know, this is the place, right? To, to quote David Byrne, yeah. right? So th- this is, this is all right. Yeah, completely agree. And come here for the vistas, come here to see the geology, come to see all that, see why Zion became a park, but understand that, okay, that's probably the big, it's the largest amount of a resource that we have, the geologic resource, but there's an equally important resource we have, the cultural resources. They may not be as prominent. We may not have as much of them, but they're just as important as the vistas that you're enjoying here in the park. Well, that, I think that's the perfect note to, to, to end on. Russ, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. And uh, I learned a lot here. Again, I was that typical tourist that, uh, you know, I showed up for the hikes and, and the vistas, and uh, uh, it was great to learn about this, uh, this backstory the next time we go. Uh, I'm going to be on the lookout. And so I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. One particular resource to note is the official Zion National Park mobile application, which is an interpretive auto tour that focuses on the human history of the area. It is available for free on iTunes and Google Play. Once again, thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. Please tell your friends, write a review, like us on Twitter and Facebook, and most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.